Good morning, everyone. So for a number of reasons, I've been thinking a lot about the word hope this week and why it's not a word that I find myself using much these days. In fact, I would say I've kind of given up on hope. And I don't say that lightly. And I know that I'm probably not supposed to be saying this as your pastor from the pulpit either. But I ask you to hear me out on this this morning. Because Hope and I had a rough breakup this year. For any of you Simpsons fans out there, you might re remember this episode um, Actually, it was in the fourth season, so it was many years ago now, where Lisa Simpson tells a little boy, Ralph, that she doesn't like him back. And Bart, her brother, replays the video of that moment back to Lisa, saying, look, you can actually pinpoint the second his heart rips in half. If you rewind and replay the news a week or so ago, I feel like I can pinpoint the moment that my heart ripped open, the moment when hope broke up with me. For me, it was the moment that I watched the video of Philando Castile's death as calmly filmed and narrated by his girlfriend, Lavish Reynolds. I wonder how many of you experienced such a moment at some point. For me, it was like some load-bearing beam within me just collapsed. And I have wanted to just sit in my anger and tears and resentment for anybody who wasn't also crying just as desperately. It was my realization that no, really, some lives don't matter until it's too late and sometimes not even then. And also very specifically that my own family is not safe in this world, really. And I don't see it getting better and no, I don't feel, I can't help anyone else feel hopeful about it right now either. The word hope feels more like a band-aid for fatigue and guilt, not really about a just future. So I'm gonna share three stories today that have been helping me through this landscape out beyond hope and find a way, and helping me find a way through this time when it seems sometimes that there is no way. Before that, though, I'd like to say that I have realized that out here in the land that feels like the land of no hope, I am far from alone. And my company is not just those who've given up. I would argue that our tradition, both the broader Judeo-Christian one that we come out of and the Mennonite tradition specifically, neither of these are what they are or have done what they have done out of hope. Our ancestors of faith were not motivated by a certainty that they could change the world, but by a commitment to be the change that they wished for. They weren't waiting for the world to get better or the forecast for justice to get more sunny. They acted out of faith, justice, love, and mercy anyway. This land is also peopled by people in deep lament. And oddly, one of the most hopeful sounds to my ears these days is true lament, because I don't know any other starting point for just action that could be based in reality than true lament. 
Today's scripture is the first story of the three that I'd like us to look at today. In this story, Abraham finds out that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where his nephew Lot lives, are going to be consumed by fire and brimstone because the Lord has heard an outcry against them. Current scholarship asserts that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were actually more to do with hospitality and the lack thereof rather than homosexuality, even though this passage has been used as a clobber text about homosexuality many years. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah did not welcome strangers that came in their midst, nor did they honor the vulnerable members within their group. If you read the chapters before and after this story, um, you can hear a lot about the non-hospitality of Sodom and Gomorrah. The story does not revolve around the worthiness of the inhabitants of those cities, nor is it about Abraham choosing the wise course of action. This was all foolishness and faithfulness as they so often go together. This is someone crying out for mercy on behalf of others against all odds. Someone believing enough in mercy and in the justice of God to demand mercy and justice here and now. I'll return to this story um, in a few minutes. But for now, I'd like to share with you um, an excerpt of a piece that appeared in the Mennonite a week or so ago. It's written by Regina Shan Stoltzfus. I don't know how many of you are familiar with her. She's an African-American Mennonite woman, and she's done extensive work on behalf of our denomination um, to help us as a denomination do anti-oppression and anti-racism work. And I'm going to read a large excerpt of her piece because I want her words as she chose them to have as wide an audience as possible. She begins her reflection by noting simply that one of the taillights of her car was recently broken and that her 20-year-old black son drives this car often. So she begins by talking about how frantic she is to fix this so that he isn't pulled over because she knows he's not safe. And now in her words. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a perfectly nice and well-meaning young white man. He explained to me how much easier it was for him to understand racism and be motivated to work against it after having developed a friendship with neighbors who are people of color. The young white man explained to me that it was this friendship that really helped him understand and care more about racism. The love and affection he and his family had for their neighbors, the meals and the stories they have shared, had done far more than any anti-racism training or other educational piece had done, he said. He was making the argument that absent of personal relationships, we cannot advance the fight against racist oppression. I used to believe this too, she says. When I first started doing anti-racism work, I leaned heavily on the power of personal relationships. I still believe in their power. I believe in the power of love. I believe as a follower of Jesus that I am called to love. However, the systemic nature of oppression means that oppression functions despite the goodwill, intentions, and yes, the love of many, many people. And at the end of the day, I am more interested in my son coming home alive than I am with someone learning to love him. 
I said as much to the young man, she says. I affirmed his friendship with his neighbors and tried to convey with my words that I did not belittle the transformative power of that relationship. But in 2016 America, if I have to choose between being loved and being treated with justice, I'm going to choose justice. If my son gets stopped for a traffic violation, I can't hope that the officer who stops him loves someone who looks like him. I can and do know that the public at large, not just police officers, but educators, employers, people just walking down the street, has been socialized to view my black son as a threat, as a criminal. I recognize, she says, that my words are limiting love to a feeling, and that the biblical command to love is much more profound than a feeling. This reflects my belief that the willingness to love across the boundaries of difference and the weight of history has not sufficiently met the biblical command. She asks, can you affirm my humanity and my right to exist without loving me? That is, having warm feelings about me? What if I'm not lovable that day? Do you get to mistreat me then? Do I have to prove my lovability, my worthiness of your love over and over and over again? Or do I just get to be? These are serious questions. At a traffic stop for a burned out headline, headlight, I can't gamble on love. So you see, well-meaning friends of all colors, it's going to take more than love to change this. Those of you who love me and mine, I see you. I appreciate you and I love you back. Those of you who don't yet love me or just don't, you don't have to but you can still co-create a world with me that reeks of justice instead of despair. And frankly, I'd rather have you pay attention to that. Beloved, yes, let us love one another, but today, my siblings, understand we cannot wait on your love if it is limited to feeling warmly about us. That, as I said, is a large excerpt from what she wrote last week in the Mennonite and for me, it was one of the first voices that I recognized in a startling way, sounding so not hopeful to me in the way I'm used to expecting religious writing to be hopeful for me. But I'm so grateful for these words and that they were printed in a publication of our denomination. So grateful for her speaking the truth of the clear and present danger of being black in the United States and for her clear call to remember that ultimately, it would be great and all if we all learned to love each other and like each other, but in the meantime, and far more important, is the, ne is the necessity of her son and all people of color coming home alive every day in this country. And I was so grateful to hear her making that nuance between love as a feeling and true love, because I think my unrequited love affair with hope is actually about that feeling of hope and the expectation to produce it on cue for others rather than my relationship with hope itself. The third story I'll share is one that I've actually told here before, but the lectionary is all about repeating Bible stories, so I'm going to repeat a personal story too. When my grandmother, Irene Gasho, was a young woman, she fell in love with a Midwestern farm boy, 
and they married and started their life together. Tragically, though, he died when they were newlyweds of only a few months. It was only after his death that she found out she was pregnant. Months later, as a young widow, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl. And she named that little girl, born of a shattered dream, Hope. For her, hope was not a passive desire, something to happen to her. Hope was a reality to nurture and love into life. A name she gave to something she was embarking on in the face of a very uncertain future. Hope is a great-grandmother now. She's my Aunt Hope, the older half-sister to my father, the mother to Janet Lind, the grandmother to Isaac Esch here in our congregation. And she was surrounded by her extended family just last summer to celebrate her 80th birthday. My grandmother Irene, which means peace by the way, nurtured hope into being. As an act of resistance and persistence in the face of a hopeless situation. For me, that is hope to hold on to. Not the outcome of an election. Not whether or not anyone else is doing or saying what I think they should be doing or saying to make the world a more just place. What these three stories have in common for me, Abraham arguing, pleading with God for mercy for others, Regina Shanstolzfus's moving peace, and the story of the birth and naming of my Aunt Hope, is that they all speak of meaningful action in a time of no apparent hope. Sodom and Gomorrah was not ultimately saved, but Abraham spoke up for Sodom and Gomorrah and pleaded anyway. Abraham was so full of passion, compassion, and mercy that he argued for a people despite their guilt, despite their probable destruction, despite their no reasonable expectation of results. He did not allow his hopelessness to paralyze him, but to spur him to greater advocacy. And I wonder, when was the last time I prayed on anyone's behalf like that? And I wonder on whose behalf are your hearts breaking? And when was the last time you prayed on anyone else's behalf, the way Abraham prayed and pleaded for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? I know I haven't been praying to God this way over the situations that are breaking my heart, but there's inspiration in Abraham's example. I can choose to nurture some unlikely seed of hope which was the phrase that Chad used in his sermon two weeks ago, within my heart and mind and body in this season of my own despair and hopelessness, over the safety of my husband and daughters and extended family, as my grandma Irene did. I can nurture that seed and protect it and bring it to life, although it's hard to imagine having the audacity to name it hope, as she did. And Regina Shanstolsus gives me the powerful reminder that even if I can't get the world to like or love the people I love enough to keep them safe, that I can still demand justice on their behalf. And I won't stop doing it no matter how hopeless it seems.
I will not tie my efforts to their likelihood of success. I will bet all that I have and all that I am on this underdog of mercy and justice. Jesus gave his life knowingly against all odds. Abraham, Regina Shanstalsfus, my grandmother, they didn't act because they had hope. They gave birth to it through their words and actions. So I can't promise you as your pastor that it's all going to be better that you should keep up your fight for peace and justice because they will ultimately prevail. I won't say things just to make you feel better because that would not be good news anyway. But I can sure as heck fight for it and I can choose to be energized by the very seeming hopelessness and the necessity of the fight. There is a place out beyond all forced and unfounded feelings of hope or hopefulness or hopelessness, a place out beyond all the distracting and deflecting arguments about who deserves what and why. And God is already there and has always been there, beginning things and ending things and working alongside all of us who join them there. That's where the work of the kingdom is going on. And that's where you can find me and my broken, hopeless heart. And I pray that we can all find our way there. Amen.